Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Guys, welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. And boy, do we have a special guest today. My main man, Michael Arietta, is in the house. Michael. I'm excited. I'm excited, Darius. It's going to be the best part of my whole week. This is all about greatness, my friend. And you are doing tons of the greatness in the world. So I'm so glad to have you here. Um, did I miss, Did I pronounce your last name properly? You, you nailed it. Arietta or Arietta. Either way is perfect. Oh, Arietta? You like that? I Let's like Arietta. You know, having the last name Mirshazadeh, you you get really (laughs) careful when it comes to, I don't like to butcher last names because people butcher mine all the time. So I'm I'm very sensitive to that. So, all right, Ariad it is. Um, So uh, look, for listeners who are new to the show, Greatness Machine, we're about two things, people who are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world. And Michael, my man is full of passion and greatness. So we're going to be talking all about the things he's doing today at Garden City, plus some of his background, which is super interesting. Um, I, you know, I want to kind of give a little background on on why I asked you to be on the show. Are you cool with that? Uh, yeah, go right ahead. So I, so like I, I'm a person that is I, I, I my number four core value is curiosity. And I'm just curious by nature. And and I'm a big believer in Gallup strength finders. So uh, individualization is my number five strength, which means I love like the individual stories. I love what makes people special. And and when I see uh, something that kind of sticks out to me that may, that is unique, especially when it comes to individuals, I always like gravitate towards it. So I don't know how you ended up on my LinkedIn feed, but this is like a couple years ago. You end up on my LinkedIn feed and I saw that you were talking about Cutco. And I have a bunch of friends who I dubbed the Cutco Mafia, John Rulin, Justin Donald, Hal Elrod, all these dudes. And and I saw that you said something about that. And I think I commented. I said, oh, go Cutco Mafia on your feed. You probably don't remember this. And and then I go start digging in because I'm just a curious guy. And I see that, man, you're a chief of staff of Dell Computers and DocuSign. And you're you're in your 30s, right? Early 30s. Yeah. And I'm like, what, what is this? <laughs> like, that's not normal. And so I was like, dude, this is super interesting. So you that's how you ended up on my feed then. Fast forward to like two years ago, you start doing the stuff at Garden City. And I'm like, oh, that's super interesting. 
And we're going to be talking about what you're doing at Garden City in, in a second. But it, it's really you're trying to build what the world's most passionate uh, uh, holding company, right? Yeah. I've never had anyone ever call it that, but that's that aligns exactly to my heart. Strings. Yeah, probably the world's most passionate holding company. So I, so like, do you, and, and my number two strength is communication. So I'm a stickler for words and like the words you use and the way you show up, man, I was just like, that guy looks really interesting. I want to get to know him better. So that's why I had my team reach out, man. I'm so glad you could make it here on the show today. I'm really excited. I had no clue uh, exactly what we were going to talk about other than greatness. And uh, one of my family values, uh, I was just telling my kids this morning is our fourth family value is give it the best or give it your best. Yeah. Um, so we just try to go above and beyond it with everything. So I love the word greatness. So hopefully we get to dig into that. I love that, man. So, um, you know, take us back because, you know, I, I, I don't think, I mean, look, I do actually believe some people are just born to want to like go out there and make it happen. I consider myself one of those types of people. It looks like you're one of those types of people, but take us back, man. Like, like how did you, like get started, give us the origin story. I love to, ha- to have the listeners understand where do people begin? Cause I think a lot of times people just assume that people end up in these places where they're doing really cool things. It's like, no, 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 no. Like there was a lot of building blocks that got you there, but take us back to the beginning of what got you started to, to where you're at now. Yeah. Um, w- I was born and raised in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I was born in Miami. First one, my family born in the U S uh, my two older sisters and my parents were are Puerto Rican, so they were born and raised in Puerto Rico. I was in my mother's belly when we moved over to Miami. So I was the first one born over here. Uh, first language was Spanish. I had a severe stutter problem uh, my whole life, just about. Uh, that was a huge, huge, huge insecurity of mine, which, funny enough, ended up becoming my greatest blessing because of that stutter problem. I was able to get a state disability grant to go to any private school that I wanted to. Uh, my father and mother, uh, they had difficult financial means, so my family never made more than $50,000 as a household income ever growing up. So that disability allowed me to go to a good school. A pretty neat statistic that now is coming out a lot, lot more is kids that grow up in poverty, two out of three, get out of poverty by simply having access to positive examples. So that's what I had. I had all these positive examples of these entrepreneurs that were seeking greatness, these doctors that were doing great things, these entrepreneurs, whatever it may be, right? I just saw that it was possible. Never in my life growing up until that point did I ever think it was possible. So I finally saw that they pooped and peed just like the rest of us, you know? And so I was like, wow, this is actually possible. So that got me kind of out of my, you know, bubble. Um, and I was like, wow, I could actually be like these families that I see, right? And so um, my father got really sick when I was uh, in my early teens. And that kind of lit something in me as the only other man in my family to say, it's time to step up. So I said, I, can I be a waiter and make a, a good amount of money? I was like, that doesn't make enough money, unfortunately, for what I'm trying to do. And then a buddy introduced me to Cutco Knives. So I started selling Cutco at 17. Um, and as you mentioned, I became the number one salesperson in Cutco that first year employed started making like six figures Wow! as a junior in high school, did the same thing as a senior in high school. And I kept doing that all throughout college, um, to put myself throughout a state tuition, graduate debt-free, help my family. So that's kind of how I got started. It was very humble beginnings. Um, it was a mess brother, to be honest with you, it was a mess. My parents, uh, argued a lot. They got separated. My dad was in and out of the hospital. Um, but, but by the grace of God, they're happier now than ever before. And, and nice. there's been a good ending to it. So very, very right. grateful. Wow. That's so crazy. So you, so you started, so your family was, you were, you were born in Puerto Rico or born here? 
in Miami? I was born in Miami. First of my family, born Got here. Got it. Okay. So the family said, so and, and I'm assuming you still have family back in Puerto Rico. Is that Absolutely, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Nice. Okay. And so, um, that's crazy. So how did you, I mean, like I Cutco goes and I know they, they really like they recruit pretty heavily out of the universities, right? How did like you're a junior in high school and you're like, how did that fall in your lap? Well, one is, uh, we all, we, you're, you're supposed to be 18 years old when you sell Cutco knives. Let's just say that I was a couple months away from being 18. Right. But that just fell in my lap that, uh, one day, w one of my good friends, he just said, Mike, you know, sky's the limit with Cutco. There's these kids out there that they're selling, you know, $1,000 per appointment, making $500 or selling 2000 making 1000 And so I was like, you know what? I've never, I have a stutter problem. So it'd be really weird for me to make cold calls, but that shouldn't, that shouldn't hold me back. And, and I go to a good Christian private school, which maybe those families will, will do me a solid and meet with me. Yeah. You know? And so I just put myself out there. So I went with training. I started with my friends that I knew, which is by the way, still the best way to do anything today. Yeah. That know and trust you. And then once people know and trust you understand what you're doing and it's mutually uh, valuable for both of you. You just simply ask them to refer you to others, which is the same thing I do today, you know, 20 something years later in a different capacity. Um, but, you know, so I would meet with my friend Brett's mom and tell her, hey, I'm selling Cutco knives or good knives. And she would like some knives. And at the end of the appointment, I would say, if you don't refer me to anybody, I'm not going to have anyone to see. And so she would say, OK, well, here's the name of my next door neighbor. And here's the name of my friend. And here's the name of blood, so forth and so forth. And I'd go home after school and I'd call them. I'd ask the teachers to go to the bathroom in the middle of class and go to the bathroom and cold call. In the middle, <laughs> in the middle of lunch, I would sit outside and cold call. Um, and so uh, I would wake up every morning at like 6 a.m. and cold call before school. So I was, I was, um, I was extremely driven, Darius, like extremely driven. Yeah. Like in a way that, in a way that, I don't know um, if I'll ever be that driven again, but I think I just had such a desire to provide for my family. And more importantly than that, I wanted to prove myself that I was good at something. I was never good at school, really. I was never good at sports. I wasn't good looking, you know? And so I really just wanted to prove myself into the world of like, hey, there's something I could actually be good at, you know? Yeah. Especially when you're doing wake up calls for people at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did I wake you? <laughs> hey, well, let me tell you about what I'm doing this summer. I'm selling cut knives. <laughs> How are you cutting your bread this morning? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's great, man. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter and Gamble, Ben and Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. 
You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now, and let me tell you, They've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now, I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. Um, so so yeah, so you went to uh, Al- University of Alabama, Roll Tide. Uh, that that's that's uh, that that's that's cool. And and you get done with that, and then you end up in tech. Now you were were you in San Francisco? Is that correct? Yeah, I was in San Francisco for okay, cool. Years. I was there for 17 years. I lived in San Francisco wow. before I moved to Austin. So uh, did you live in the city or did you live outside the city? I lived right in the city. Well, the first couple of years, Menlo Park, San Jose, and then the last couple of years, right there in San Francisco. Well, okay. I'm going to ask because I'm a local in San Francisco. What streets did you live on? I lived on Bay Street in the marina. Oh, okay. You're in the marina. My brother had a house on Lombard. Okay, great. Yeah, right on the gates of the Presidio there. So anyway, all right, I digress. I love to talk San Francisco. So so you get to San Francisco. Walk us through like, you know, because you really did an amazing, I mean, it sounds like this this hunger to be successful is obviously something that translated into into your life once you got into tech. Tell us like about your tech story, because because the things that you did from to become the chief of staff of some of the most iconic you know, tech companies in the world, you know, that's not normal, especially to do it at such a young age. Walk us through a little bit of that. Yeah. um, I never wanted to get into tech to be completely honest with you because I never understood it really. So coming from Cutco, I excelled, you know, to the best that I could at Cutco. Um, But I knew that I hit a limit there. I knew that I hit a ceiling there that you could only make X hundred thousand dollars a year. Like there was never going to, I was never going to be the person on the other side of the table buying 10, 20, $30,000 sets of knives and business gifts, right? That was never going to be me doing what I was doing. And so I always said, like, who's the guy that writes the checks, right? I don't want to be the athlete on the team. I want to be the sports owner, right? And so I always kind of had that mindset. And so um, I asked my father-in-law, I go, Gary, what can I do to keep doing kind of what I'm already doing, but at a higher capacity? He said, you have one of two options. 
you could either sell like luxury private aircrafts for 10, 20, 30, 50 million, or you could go into software and you can make a life in so an enterprise software. And so um, I said, okay, I'll go the enterprise software route. And I just met one guy that he gave me the chance. His name was Tarkin Manor. He was a CEO of Wise. And he just gave me a chance and he didn't care that I was young. He said, Alexander the Great conquered the world or whatever, 19. And so I have high expectations for you, which is really cool. And I just became his mini me. So I became his apprentice, his chief of staff, his go-to, his jack of all trades, uh, just an extension of him. Right. And it was cool. I was 21 years old or however old I was, 22. And I was just in every CEO meeting and then Michael Dell acquired us. So I was in every meeting there with him and I got to go all around the world and do M&A and, and do international expansion. It was it was amazing. But I was in water in over my head. Right. Um, and also I got into a big organization like Dell and all right. the understand operations and processes and everything. I really liked the the entrepreneur grit, right? That I had in Cutco, where 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 sky's the limit, where where you could be entrepreneurial, where you could be creative, where it's building rapport, where you know your your role's not really defined, right? You're managing everything from A to Z. And so I just had that itch to get into startup world again, likewise. And so someone told me about DocuSign. And so the CEO of DocuSign, he was looking for a chief of staff, similar role, kind of jack of all trades, extension of him. So I joined him in 2014 and we grew that company from, you know, about 150 people. Um, and I was there for six years and we grew it to about over 5,000 people. Wow. And so, cool. yeah, that, that was kind of the ride in Silicon Valley. And throughout all that, though, I had this crazy desire of saying, although I'm in tech, I'm not a tech guy. Although, because I, I, I'm just a meat and potatoes guy. I'm a one plus one equals two. Like I like boring, yeah. unsexy businesses that everyone could understand. You know, it's how it's how I grew up. It's what my family members did. And so even though I was in tech with non-tangibles, things you couldn't touch, see or feel, right? Um, I still craved it. Hence why the Garden City story later. Yeah. So that's, yeah. And I can't wait to get there. Um, back up, you know, backing up for a second. You know, it's funny. You, 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 you said a few things in that. You know, you came to this country with your family and, and obviously like, you know, first generation, you know, I mean, Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States, but, you know, it's 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 almost like its own country. Right. Like the, it's, it's it's everyone there speaks Spanish and it's it's a different different world when you go there. Um, and, and then, you you know, through through luck or faith or whatever, you, you end up getting into a school that opens your eyes to what is possible. And then. And then here you are and you get into tech and you meet a person who doesn't put a lid on you and says anything, this is what's possible, right? You know, I had a, a guest on the show who, a uh, really interesting guy, um, who we were talking about, he ended up kind of went the opposite direction where he ended up in state penitentiary by the time he was a teenager. And, and I asked him, you just kind of brought this up, the, the, this idea in my head where I said, well, why, why, why didn't you want more? He's like, I didn't know that there was more out there. Exactly. So, so I'd love to like get your thoughts on this because like, like I grew up in an environment where upper middle class, where my dad was in the service uh, services business. We'll be talking about that. He was an entrepreneur. He owned gas stations. Right. Yes. So I grew up and my parents, the exposure they gave me was the other way. They said, you need to see what it's like not to have. So I had to go be a gas station attendant when I was 10. Right. But, but, you know, I knew like it was, the, that was the opposite of what I was around. Right. Like to see people that were living at minimum wage on more or less poverty. Right. 
Like, so how do you, like, how do you reconcile that? Or what are your thoughts around people that maybe don't have the ability to be around to get that exposure, to know what, what normal is? Like if, if things have been different, how, how might you have like maybe thought about how to get yourself in those circumstances? Cause I think, I feel like you've done a really good job of getting yourself in these situations where you see what you want and you go surround yourself with people that have got it before. Yeah, it's a wonderful question. And so, and I love how you're strategically kind of zooming out. Um, I do think that those big milestones of my life is what you kind of started to hit upon it was that there was a big milestone of stutter that led to a disability of being able to put myself in an environment with affluent families that could afford to go to Christian schools. So I would see them and be like, these people are no more special than I am, right? As I, something I always say is we all pee, poop and die. And that was something that I saw was these families are no more special than my family. And so right. I could achieve that. So that was one milestone. Then it was my father getting really, really sick and me coming to this cuckoo world and seeing the John Rulins and Al and the Hal Elrods and all these folks on stage and make all this capital. And I got to see them and I'm like, they all pee, poop and die. There's nothing special about them. Well, I could, I could achieve that. And then once I achieved that, then I saw the people I was selling to that were these business owners, right? Or or there were these successful people, right? That had successful families. I was like, I could be that. And then same thing at Dell, right? And then I saw these entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley and I said, I could be that. And so what I would say is all these people that we so idolize or all these people that we so put on a mantle, right? Once you spend time with them in intimate settings, and it's not just it's not just all a bunch of BS, but it's actually vulnerable, authentic conversations. You realize there's nothing that much special to them, right? right. There's a couple of key common indicators that they all carry and do, right? Like you know, like humility for the most part, hungry and grit, smart, right? Humble, hungry, smart. A lot of those three. Um, but so so I got exposed through that. My 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 advice to people would be that if you're not if you're just working in an accounting job or if you're not if you're working for a small business in Des Moines, Iowa, right? Or whatever it may be, wherever you're listening to this podcast, if you're like, well, Mike, I don't have the ability to see those private school families and get into their kitchen and, and get to understand their story. I don't have the environment to be with Michael Dell or all these Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. What do I do? Well, you're doing it now. You're learning. You're on a podcast. There's so much information readily available to us now than right. ever before. Do you know something I hate, Darius? I hate when I read XYZ person just paid $100,000 or $1 million to go have dinner with Warren Buffett. You're going to go pay that amount of money for a one or two hour dinner when he spent three, four, five hundred hours writing these books of his, right? So what I mean is I believe that if you're high intention, if you have high intention, you could get the same amount of knowledge that it took me to get through experience, right? If you just go out and try to seek it. Yeah, I love that. And so true. I think that they recently paid, spent $14 million to have lunch with him. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll go spend $27 and get 100 times more information by reading his books, you know? Right. Yeah. It, and it's, a, it's, it's it's there's this idea of proximity, right? And the, And maybe you can't get lunch with Buffett. But to your point, 
you can surround yourself with his videos, his books, his podcasts, his interviews. I mean, I, I love Warren Buffett. Yeah, like, like you don't know this, but I'm a huge fan of his. And, and like the fact that when, when we talk about Garden City, I know that there, that there's some, some correlation there with what you're doing next, but, but yeah, I love that. I, I really appreciate that answer. And I just, I was just curious because you obviously came without those cookups. And, and I think there is, you know, seeing is believing right to your point and, and, and that helps, but there, but today in this world we live in, you know, I'm, I'm a little older than you. I'm 44 years old. You know, I, I, I'm on the cusp of Gen, Gen X and millennial, right? Like I'm just, and since my dad was foreign, like I'm, I'm a little old school. But the reality is, is we have so much access now to information that we never had access to before just by the, with the internet, that that's a game changer for anybody. You can pull yourself out of any situation by going and learning and educating. So I really appreciate that you said that. Now let me uh, share one other thing that's a very tactical tip that I would suggest to people that I did. Um, so in Silicon Valley, when I was working for someone, I felt like I did not have all the mentorship that I wanted. I felt like there was, I, I asked myself if I could meet and learn from anyone in Silicon Valley, who would it be and why? And there was a guy I really admired named Pat Gelsinger. Uh, now he's a CEO at Intel, right? right? Before he was the CEO at VMware. And so I just shot him a cold email. It was very heartfelt. It was very authentic. It was very curated to just him, right? I invested the time to read his books. I invested the time to, under, to understand what he stood for. And I sent him an email. Pat told me almost nobody, even though the tens of thousands of people that have read his book, nobody has really reached out in an authentic way to seek for advice and counsel and mentorship. Well, now you fast forward 15 years later, Pat's one of my lead investors now at Garden City, right? Wow. He's one of my dearest mentors. I've done that, Darius, countless, countless, countless times. And now with communication of LinkedIn and now with all these data websites, you can access people's information. Use something like Loom, right? If you don't know Loom, go Google it. But instead of writing an email with just letters, go go record a Loom video and send it to your number one person you would love to mentor you, right? That might be another way to get exposure to put yourself out there. Let me ask you a question about that because, and it's a great point. And that again, with with access, and if you go do your work, you did the work, by the way, the homework to yes. to, to make it where he wanted to spend time with you, as opposed to like, oh, this kid's just like carpet bombing every top CEO exactly. in Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. So, so you know, when you went in there, you're like, I want, the, I, I want, he's my number one. I want him to mentor me. What did that look like when you start having a mentor you that you guys go grab a donut and hang out like once a month? Like what does mentoring look like to you? You just nailed it. I think it comes in three in three stages. One, one is a constant cadence. So that is exactly it is maybe not once a month for a CEO that busy, but once a quarter, 90 days flies by. Right. Um, so once a quarter, just getting a reoccurring meeting on his calendar with his assistant, right? Typically early, early, early in the morning for Pat, it was always like six or 7 a.m. at their office, right? Number two is advice and counsel as needed, right? In terms of just as something comes up, I pop him here and there. And then number three is find a way to get out of the norm in terms of something something unique, like, hey, can we go on a hike? Or, hey, um, can, I, can, I, can I go to a charity event with you? Or can we, something out of the norm that actually builds a relationship. The first two are very tactical in terms of directly input, directly output, right? right. I always try to do the third one to actually build a relationship, you know? Yeah. 
So, so hiking it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so hiking, yeah, like we would do things in Petora Valley, you know, nice. uh, there'd be that, or he's a big biker, right? And so those come over time. But I think that's the easiest thing for a mentor. I get so many emails of people, Darius, on LinkedIn especially, that just always ask me for my time. And there is not one, they, they barely even know the name of my firm, you know? Right. We don't do the homework, exactly as you said, right? It, it, it's carpet bombing, exactly as you said, which no one... It's a little things that still work today, but no one really does it, right? Yeah. Well, what's in it for you? You're like, yeah, oh yeah, of course, man. Like this sounds great. Like, like you wrote me a generic email, don't know anything about me, and you want my time, which I have very limited amount of, and I can't buy more of it. So, <laughs> sure. sure, where do I set up for that, bud? What's in it for me? There's <laughs> something I do now, Darius, that I tell people is as soon as they ping me something back, I just say, hey, instead of jumping on a call or a meeting, why don't you just ping me the three things that you most want to talk about? Ninety-five percent of people don't reply back. Yeah, it's worth. Yeah, of course. And and I think that people don't want to do the work if it, it, it some do, but the, some most do. aren't most yeah. aren't the mics of the world. And and those that do end up becoming great. Yeah, exactly. I love that. So now here you are, you have had these high flying jobs, you've got to rub elbows and shoulders with some of the biggest and baddest names in the valley. And you're like, DocuSign obviously gets sold, right? So you so, so I'm guessing we go public. You, you went public, excuse me. And so you, you had an, a bit of an exit, I would assume, out of that. Um, but you have never really been an entrepreneur before. How do you parlay that into like, all right, I'm going to go start a fund? <laughs> like, how does that work? Such a good question. This is such a neat story. So ever since I can remember, like, I would walk into whatever, McDonald's, and just be like, man, how do they not realize like that – you know, if they just greeted me in a different way that I would be a happier customer, how do they not change their product offering or how is there not pricing and packaging that's more applicable to different markets that they're in? Or, or I would check into a hotel, right? And I would just see things from finance to culture to accounting or to marketing to check-in to the linens they use, to the pool service, everything. And for some reason, the tangible operations of a business at a dry cleaner or whatever it may be, a car wash especially, would always stick out to me. And as I got older and older and older and more into tech, I would just realize like, like I have a spidey sense of kind of those boring businesses. There was one time that I remember coming off a plane and there was a woman, you know, when you're boarding off a plane and there's the people there that are cleaning the plane and they have like the orange vest on. Yeah. There was a woman that she was cleaning the plane and as I was going down, she quickly went into a row. And that was just a very distinct moment to me to realize two things. One is I've always loved the operation of these businesses. But number two, the thing I've loved most, the people who they employ. Yeah. Because right now I feel like we're in a part in our society that we've just put them in a category of the forgotten, of the invisible. They're just a cog in the wheel. They have no purpose, no mission, no dignity, no respect. They barely have any upward mobility, right? And we're fine with that. We really talk about them. We just talk about the next innovation, you know? And I was like, well, what if, what if I actually just follow what I've always been truly passionate about? What if I follow the true thing that makes me tick? If money were no object, what would I do? I would spend the rest of my life, you know, doing what I just said in those restaurants or hotels or car washes or dry cleaners, right? To make them freaking awesome, right? With culture, with marketing, with innovation, with, with all of that. And number two is I would radically pursue the enrichment of these working class people. And I will let them know that they do matter and that they do have purpose and that they are yeah. super important. And so that to me was the why, the why. The, as long as I had the why, nothing was going to stop me come up with the what. 
you know? And so that why convicted me so deeply that my wife and I just made a covenant to each other. We were like, we feel as though this is the next calling of our life. And I don't know what space this is called. I don't know how this starts. I don't know how I buy companies, how I transform them. I don't know anything about that. But if, if the why is so convicting, the what will follow, the what will follow. So, um, so, so I would say that before anything, it was the why. Um, from there, what I had to realize after I was utterly convicted of the why, utterly convicted that nothing will stop me, um, I had to start getting a lot of wise counsel, a lot, a lot of wise counsel from people um, to say, how does this work? How would I go ahead and buy these companies? Is there actually a world that I could go and impact people's lives? Now, granted, 90% of the things I heard was, you're not going to raise a fund, a private equity fund, when you've never been in private equity, when you've never been in finance, when you've never ran a business, now you're going to own a bunch, right? Yeah. And so I heard that and heard that and heard that. And what I would say is, that's fine. But even if I was to do this, how would I go about doing it? So one of the things I say to my team probably every single day or two is people support what they help create. People support what they help create. People support what they help create. So if I wanted people to support what I'm about to go do, which I knew I was going to do it. My why was already utterly convicting to me. I had to bring them in to help create it. So once I brought them in to help create this potential thing I'm going to do, they were going to support it. Yeah. Right? They were going to support it. People support what they help create. So I brought in Pat Gelsinger. I said, Pat, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. If I was to do this, how would you go about doing this, Pat? And Pat would give me his advice about saying, hey, I would get, you know, a lot of people to understand technology because if you're going to transform these companies with technology, you know, you should get technology. Then I would go to another gentleman, right? I go to someone from Costco, the chairman of Costco, and I'd say, I love what you guys do with culture and living wages, right? And your models. But how do you, how would you do it if you did a new Brookshire Hathaway, a small business? She would give me why. She said, well, if I were to do it, I would do it this way. And I kept gathering, kept gathering, kept gathering, kept gathering a bunch of information. And then I eventually synthesized it. And I said, based on what the 50 of you are telling me, you're saying it would look kind of like this, right? Like you said technology, you said you would do this with culture. You said that you would do this, to buy companies and hold them forever and not flip them, right? You said you wouldn't have more than 50 investors. So I, I took all of your feedback that you all said, and I created this thing called Garden City. And people are like, yeah, 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 that, yeah, that's what I told you. Yep, yep, so I'm obviously going to support it. That's what I helped you create. And then all of a sudden got created. And there was one conversation that almost broke everything. I visited who is now my lead investor, a very big private equity investor here in the country. And he looked at me and said, Mike, no matter what, I'm going to be your lead investor. That's how much I believe in you. But I'm going to tell you right now, you should not raise a fund and you're not going to be able to raise a fund really. So if I was you, I would just go do deal by deal the way most people do. They find a company that's going to sell, and they call it a country club deal. They say, well, let me buy it. And then once we're under contract, I'll go raise the capital because I don't have the capital right now. So I'll go raise it once we're under contract. He said, do that to start off. Get a couple of wins under your belt. Buy one or two companies. Then you raise maybe a 10 or $20 million fund. Then later, a $50 million fund. Okay. But I don't think you're going to be able to do it. But if you do, I'm your lead investor. So I went home. I spoke to my wife. I said, Veronica, I spoke to, you know, this XYZ investor, and he said he doesn't think I'm going to be able to raise a fund. He said if I do, he'll be my lead investor, but uh, he doesn't think I'll be able to. And it's a conversation that always brings me goosebumps. Veronica said, 
if you are so convicted that Garden City is called to exist and there's nothing that could stop you, do not let one person stop you. And the other thing that she said is, if this gentleman is saying that no matter what, he will be your lead investor, he himself believes in it and he could be your biggest um, uh, you know, skeptic. And so that conversation, I said, you know what, if I just raise five million or 10 million, that's fine. And so I put myself out there ready to fail, which Darius, that's the number one thing I see from fund managers that reach out to me saying, I want to start this thing. And so they might get all the data. They may people support what they help create. They might get them in there. They might listen to good feedback. Right. But then as soon as they have that conversation right before pressing go, they go for the easy route. They go for the route that that lead investor told me, maybe just crawl before you walk, right? And I just said, my why is too big to fail. And so I went for the plunge, you know? And and that's how we ended up raising $50 million to start. Wow, man. I just got goosebumps. That was a really cool. I was curious on how you did it because I uh, I, I was talking to one of my, my mentors, telling him about what you were, you were doing. And he, uh, you ever heard of Stegen Leadership Academy? No, I, no, I don't. Think oh, so. you should check it out. You, you, you would, you would actually probably love it. Um, Rand Stegen is the founder of it, and he's and he's one of my mentors. And um, we were just chatting because I'm a Stegen grad, and it's it's a conscious leadership uh, like program. So like John Mackey sends his whole executive team, current uh, ju- uh, the current Jason Buchel, the current CEO of of Whole Foods. Uh, he and I graduated in the same class from 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 Stegen. A lot, lot of really uh, interesting wow. leaders come through this program. So Rand, who started this, you know, gosh, over 20 years ago, he's on the board of Conscious Capitalism. And I said, hey, there's, have you heard of, I asked him if he heard of your organization. He hadn't. But I said, you know, the, do you know what a permanent capital fund is? And he's like, do I know what a permanent capital fund is? And he was basically saying, he's like, it's so hard to start those things because, Everyone wants to know when they can get their money back. <laughs> and, I, and, and I said, well, there's a guy out there that's doing it. I'm interviewing him next month. And, uh, and, and, he, and he's, he's, I mean, he's very aligned with what you're talking about. But, but yeah, like, I guess it, obviously, you, to your point, you came in with conviction. People mm-hmm. support what, what, they're, what they help create. I love that. There's an alignment there from values and purpose. But when you start looking at Garden City, and I guess I guess we're jumping the gun. The, the audience is like, "Who's what is Garden City?" <laughs> so 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 let's take a step back, and then I'll finish with my question. So you got the fifty mil to start the thing to go buy companies, I guess. But what is Garden City? What are you trying to do with it? We are trying to do exactly what we said in the beginning. I think is I've never heard anyone say it that way. Is create the most uh, passionate holding company. We are stupid obsessed with small to mid-sized companies. We believe that they're the backbone of America. Um, and there's hundreds of thousands of small to mid-sized companies out there, hundreds of thousands. Uh, we talk about Googles and Microsofts and all that, but the real employers of our great country are these small mid-sized service companies, these small to mid-sized accounting firms, these small to mid-sized healthcare companies, financial service businesses, the blue collar pool business, the janitorial company, all these sort of things are the things that make our country go round and round. Yeah. And there's a huge thing happening beneath our noses called the silver tsunami. We all talk about baby boomers. Baby boomers were the most entrepreneurial generation in our country's history. They started more businesses than any other generation in American history. 
Well, how old is the average baby boomer now? They're in their 60s. Yeah. Yeah, they're in their 60s, 70s, right? And so these baby boomers that are in their 60s or 70s that were the most entrepreneurial generation, what do they do with their business that they started? There's hundreds of thousands of them. This, I'll start to give you some data. 250 small to mid-sized companies in America. Half of them, half of them are past retirement age. So they're so 250,000 of them? 250,000 businesses that they anticipate make an annual profit of one to 10 million a year. And, and half of the, the proprietors of those businesses are past retirement age. Yeah, so call it 125,000 people are baby boomers, are past 60 years old, roughly. And they, so 125,000 proprietors out there, they make an annual profit in their, in their back pocket of anywhere from one to $10 million a year. Right. Okay. That's 125,000 businesses that are crushing it. They are your local, you know, a septic uh, company. They are your HVAC company. They are your uh, financial service accounting firm. They are your whatever it may be. Right. They're your civil engineering firm. They're all those firms. Right. Um, And so out of 125,000 of them, 75% of those companies, Stanford predicts, does not have a liquidity or succession plan. So, so 25% of them do. 25% is like, yeah, my son came in the business five years ago. My daughter came in the business. Or, or I have a partner and he still has 10 years in the tank, right? Or we're going to do an ESOP or something like that, right? Okay. But 75%, so call it you know, 90,000 companies. Right. Yeah. They don't not have sure what to do. Not sure what to do. Not like like my wife's grandfather, he owns a, a nuts and bolts business that they go and distribute nuts and bolts to oil companies in Texas. He's 80 years old and he just doesn't know what to do. He makes a very good profit every single year. And he just like, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm, I'm going to eventually have to sell it, but I'll just kick the can down the curb. Who do I sell it to? How do I navigate that? I'm too small for the big private equity companies, those fancy, you know, guys that come in with their suits and, and shiny shoes. I'm way too big for them. So they're not, or I'm way too small for them. So they're not going to buy me. You know, I can't just go sell it to my neighbor. You know, I make a million dollars a year. He can't come up with three, four, five million dollars to buy me out. So what do I do? Do I just right. close down the shop, even though I have all these customers that I've been around for 30, 40, 50 years that I have all these employees? What do I do? So there's this market in the segment of these small to mid-sized companies that are freaking great. They've been around for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years plus. They have strong management teams. They have a reputable brand. They have a good moat. They have a good product and service that they're known for, right? They have great Google reviews and Yelp reviews, right? They, they're the local sponsors of the, of the, of the uh, baseball fields and the hockey rinks and the, and, the co- and the high school football games on Friday night. It's those companies that always we see their trucks that we're like, who owns that company that I always see their truck in my local town, right? Yeah. That's it. It's those companies. And the big, big private equity firms, the 100 million, 500 million, 2 billion, 20 billion, they need to buy big businesses to deploy that capital. Right. So it just woke up to me. I never knew this space existed. It just woke up to me being like, holy smokes, over the next 10 years, the silver tsunami space is massive. There is a massive silver tsunami wave coming 
of these businesses have to sell and they have no one to sell it to. So why don't we just raise a pool of capital that professionally buys these small to mid-sized companies? Why don't we create a Brookshire Hathaway-like model that we're no BS, no a-hole, just super simple, straightforward, easy, that we're just like, if you have a good business with the good reputation and good moat, you have a good management team, you've been around for a long time and you're making at least two to $10 million a year, we'll give you a fair offer. We'll close a deal. You could stay on if you want for another year, two, 10, forever. You could leave if you want, you know? You could roll over equity if you still wanna own a piece. You could sell us 100%, you could sell us 40%. We don't care. We're just gonna be in service to all these small to mid-sized companies and we're gonna buy them. And once we buy them, we're gonna put them under our holding company. And that holding company, like a Brookshire Hathaway, right? Or like a Mars Candy or like a whatever, right? We're gonna buy them. And once we buy them, what, well, what are we gonna do with them to make them grow, to make mm-hmm. them better? We're gonna do culture, technology, and sales. Those are the three things that we wake up and our holding company does every day for the companies that we keep buying. Is so we help them with culture, we help them with technology, and we help them with sales. But let me ask a question. So like, are you coming in and taking a controlling interest in these companies or like, how does that work? Because obviously traditional private equity is going to want to control the business. Uh, you're coming in, you're buying these, you know, great legacy. I mean, what you're describing, you know, is the backbone of the country economically and, and, and entrepreneurially. Right. So the boring, I love boring, by the way, like love, love, love. Like everything you talk about, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. That that is our country. That is what's made America so great. So when we're looking at those businesses though and you're coming in, are you are you taking control or like how's that work? That's my first question. My second question is when they want out, like I mean, I'm assuming you haven't ran a and I and I know some of the businesses you, you bought recently, like let's use the one you bought in Tennessee, which is a janitorial company. I'm assuming, you know, I mean, you don't know anything about running a janitorial company. So if the guy wants out hundred percent. How do you, how do you handle that? I, uh, both ways control and, and when they want out completely. Yeah. So the question that I ask business owners is what do you think would best serve you and your people? So uh, the janitorial business in Tennessee, that gentleman was a 80 year old gentleman. His name was Gary Duncan. Amazing entrepreneur, amazing leader. And he was like, Mike, I'm 80. I think he has nine kids. He's like, I haven't even been involved in this business lately. So all the questions you asked me, I'm not going to know the answer. You could ask my CFO. You could ask our current GM that manages the business, who, by the way, is my his son that's 33 years old. You could ask our COO. You could ask those people. Uh, I want out. And I want to sell. I own 100% of the business. I want to sell you 100% of the business. And we say, if that's what serves you best, great. We will do that. Right. And so that answers that. But then there's another business called Rev Partners that they are a, a, a sales ops as a service. So, you know, tech startups that need sales operations, but they can't go hire full time sales ops people right. or companies that need to deploy HubSpot and manage HubSpot, all that stuff. These two gentlemen, Matt and Brendan Tolson, they started Rev Partners and they were doing amazing. They were growing like crazy. And they were like, hey, uh, right now, we really, really, really like what Garden City stands for. We really want to sell a large chunk of our business, but we want to still hold on to the majority. Would you guys be willing to buy a minority stake less than 51%? We're like, do you feel that that's what serves you and your people best? They're like, yes. We're like, great, then we'll do that. You know. So our answer is we want to honestly serve 
what works best for the business owner. Naturally, in these silver tsunami situations, all their chips are in one basket. So they want to diversify their wealth. They want to pull it out. And once they hear why we want to buy the business, because we believe we could grow it a lot, they typically go from saying, I just want to sell you 100% to being like, well, I'm going to have to do something with all this capital. So why don't I just roll over some equity and still own 10 or 20% and, right. do, and, and ride this journey with you guys? Because you guys are probably going to grow my janitorial company from eastern Tennessee to all of Tennessee to all of the southeast. And if I own 10 or 20% of that, that second bite of the apple might be worth what my entire bite is now. Yeah. Right. And so we're just flexible on that. The second answer that you gave is uh, what do you do if someone wants out? Typically we, the, the number one, so we've looked at hundreds of businesses. There were no, we've looked at about 400 companies a year. So we've looked at thousands of companies now. Um, the number one reason why we do not buy companies is because their owner hustles. So we ask a lot of questions in diligence, like on the janitorial business, right? So we say, you know, um, talk to us. Do you do you know a lot of the customer? And he's like, no, I've been out of it for a while. Oh, well, what are your financials? I don't know. I, I, I've been out of it, but you could ask my my CFO and so forth and so forth. That that's good. That's good. That means that he's an owner of the business and he is not a bottleneck and he and it's not an owner hustle. Right. right. He has a healthy non-owner management team. So if you take Gary out and you put Garden City in, the business still operates just as is. Right. And hopefully even better. Versus every call that I have is, so who's your largest customer? Oh, largest customer is a one, two, three Acme. Oh, and they actually just bought yesterday for $7.54 and they bought last week for $10.45. You know, I'm actually about to go play a golf with Joey over there who's their head of purchasing. Okay. Um, hey, so what's your turnover? Our turnover is fourteen percent. The person got ready. The person that got fired last week. I sat down and I fired them. And you're saying that you are going to leave the business? Like we're buying you out? Well, it sounds like you're the thing that makes the business actually work. So almost all small businesses, unfortunately, areas are owner hustles. So that's yeah. what we have to look for and discern. So to answer your question is. When we look for a situation, we're looking for a healthy non-owner management so that once that owner leaves, the business does not go down. Oh, got it. Yeah, that may well that makes sense, right? And 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 Darwinistically, it makes the business more valuable because you can step in and buy an asset. One question I have on that though is, you know, and I I have a lot of friends in private equity. I was talking to a good friend of mine, um, Byron, about this. He said, you know, one of the issues is that you'll have these higher level executives in those types of businesses where they, you know, they wanted to do an MBO or they want a piece of the action. And so when, you know, Johnny, the CEO or Sa Sally, the CEO leaves, they're like, well, the, you know, Garden City owns us now. Like, what is this? Like my jail cell where I, yeah, they're cool and they care about culture and they care about me, but I want a piece of the action. I'm building this company. Darn it. Totally. So, and I agree with them wholeheartedly. Darius, I think the best people in private equity are the ones that didn't come from private equity because we have such a such an obvious approach to things. Like hear, like hear what you just said, which is so it's a situation that comes up all the time. You have these people that are the CFO or president president of an organization that they've been working there. Most of these people don't have equity. These owners don't give them equity. They pay them their salary. And then all of a sudden a new buyer comes in. And the new buyer is like, well, congrats. I'm like, I'm the new owner now. And you're going to keep working for that $200,000 a year. Um, and we're going to own hundred percent. And we want you to think like an owner because we're not obviously in the same city as you, right. but we're not going to make you an owner. So right. we want you to think like an owner, but what? So every business we buy, 
The management team that we have there, if we want them to think like an owner, we make them owners. That's what Garden City does every single time. Every single management team we do, we want them to think like owners, so we give them equity to be owners. What like when you when you do that, are you because there's there's some, you know, there's has to be meaningful enough. Do you say, okay, 10%, 5%? Is there like a range equity-wise in your mind that you're like, this is an important number where we want to keep these five people happy or you know, how, how do you kind of formulate that? It depends on the size of company, right? So if it's a company that makes a million dollars a year, right, you're obviously not going to carve out only two or three percent. You might need to go up to 10 percent. But if it's a company that makes five or eight million dollars a year of profit, right, you probably are not going to do 10 percent of profit in that, right, if it's a much larger company. So we just try to right size of aligning our interests. That's what we try to do. We try to align our interests with the management team of saying we like one of our golden rules is we treat you the way that we want to be treated, right? So if I was in their shoes, I want them to be as incentivized as we are, right? Um, so so it, it depends on situations. Like yeah, under, totally understandable. Yeah, it's so are you guys doing uh, just profit sharing? Or are you guys doing actual equity in the business? Well, I mean, you're never selling the business, though. So does that even matter? That's the issue. Yeah, that's the issue. So <laughs> we treat it like equity, but it's basically, hey, as long as you're here, you're going to get this profits interest. And then whenever you leave, because we're going to sustain you longer, you know, we'll just buy you out of whatever, as if it was a transaction, because that's the way our model works, right? It's, it's a cash flow model, right? It's a cash flow model. Yeah. So the way that you make your return is through cash, is through profits. And whatever percentage of the business you own, that's the percentage of profits that you get, you know? And then if you ever leave, we'll obviously bring in a third party advisor, unbiased to value the business to say, oh, this business is worth X times. So you should get paid X times that cash flow. Yeah, that totally I love that. So I have a question for you. Um, and I know and I know we're we're running a little over here. Uh so I'll but I'll I'll make it quick. Um so you have these 50 investors, and it sounds like they're in it for the long haul, and you guys raised the 50 million bucks between that group. But I know that you have massive aspirations. Like, like, like the one of the coolest things about your story, and anyone that has half a brain on their shoulders should go check out your website. Joingardencity.com. Is that correct? Yeah, gardencityequity.com or joingardencity.com. Yeah. Yeah. And when when I was like, you know, doing research for the show, it's it's you know, you want to build one of the, you know, I, I believe it's like one of the large largest, most successful holding companies in the world that's passionate and that takes care of the people, right? Yes, but 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 fifty million is not going to get you there. Yep. So, so obviously you can build some enterprise value in these businesses, but even if you 10 exit, which would be amazing, now you're at 500 million. Yep. That's still like a blip on the radar. What, like, are you going to raise additional funds? Are you going to go back to your investors? Like, like what are your thoughts on the, the future of the growth of Garden City as this prove, model proves to be successful? Yeah. Um, so a key word that we say is we want to be the best holding company in the world where, we, where all of our workers can thrive. So we want to be the best holding company where we give an opportunity for all of our workers so that they can thrive holistically, right? Uh, economically, socially, financially, spiritually, right? We want to give them the tools and resources that they can thrive. A key word I did not say there is that we want to be the biggest holding company. Gotcha. Okay, sorry. There's a great book called Small Giants that talks about arguably the best companies in each one of their arenas are by no means the biggest. Many times they're some of the smallest, you know, they do things freaking excellent with greatness. Right. And we know a lot of those companies, right, that we could start rattling off of who are some of the brands that you love most that do it with greatness or typically not the largest ones. So we want to be the best holding company in the world where all workers thrive. Now, given that, we're not going to just stop at five companies that we're at today. Right. And we're not in probably in the next year, we'll probably be at seven companies. Right. So we cannot do that just on 50 million dollars. 
So we'll probably deploy this full 50 million in the next year or so. And then we'll raise more funds into the holding company, right? So we could raise however much money, right? We could raise, depending on how big and how fast we want to go, we could raise just another 50 million, which, you know, we could keep on getting perfect and being excellent and buying the same amount of companies and making them the best in their industry. Maybe raise 100, maybe we could raise 350 million. So I'm not sh- quite sure what that is, but the number one thing we tell ourselves is how can we be the best stewards to the companies we're buying? But it's not it's not number of companies. It's every industry we find ourselves in, we want to be the best in that industry. So or, what, initially you had said that you wanted to keep it to 50 investors. If you go and you guys raise the next fund, are you guys going to bring in new investors? Or, I mean, you'll go to the well again and you're assuming that your investors are happy though i'm guessing most or not all of them will reinvest but what yeah what's your thoughts is it like hey if we well five thousand investors if 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 they're the right investors what are your is your what's the is is the world is the world your oyster there or is there like what do you think yeah so so we have one key criteria for our investors they just need to be missional they need to be mission aligned investors that realizes about purpose and profit, not just profit. And sometimes there will be sacrifices financially to do the right thing for our companies, right? Um, that are accessible. So there's plenty of athletes and big Fortune 500 CEOs I've spoken to that they're like, oh, hey, speak to my family office person, and they treat this as just another another investment, another private equity investment in their in their in their portfolio. We don't want you. Yeah, like we do not want you. This is not what that is. Our investors get together once a year, husband and wives, for three days for a shareholder summit. And we are a family. We are a Garden City family. When our investors go to different cities, they hang out with each other. They stay at each other's houses all through Garden City. That's how they met, right? They're doing other deals and, and, and philanthropy and sporting things all with one another. So we really want to protect that. That's like our moat. Our, our moat that everyone tells us that's involved in Garden City is like, what we have going on here, don't screw it up. This is like super special. We're buying companies. We're all getting behind them. We're investing in them. We're helping support them. We're visiting them. We're taking the CEOs out. We're rolling technology. We're changing cultures. So that's the biggest thing is when we bring in other investors, which we obviously will, they just have to be those type of people. Okay. Um, and then if we raise, you know, 200 million in our next go around, we'll obviously go to our investors that we currently have and say, Hey, you put in 50 million, you know, what capacity do you have to go towards the 200? Maybe we only get to 75, maybe we only get to hundred. So I'll obviously create a, a gap, a deficit to bring in new investors, which since closing our last fund, we've met probably another 50 people that are amazing that I wish I got in. Right. But unfortunately the funds closed. So they'll fortunately get in on the next round. I love and that's, it. By the way, Darius, that's how we get all of our deal flow. So all like today, one of my investors just pinged me saying, Hey, there's a real estate service company, a property management company. They're looking to sell another one of my investors that just pinged me about a fire extinguisher company saying, Hey, they're looking to potentially take on investment, right? There's a pickleball company, right? That someone just pinged me about, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> so our investors are so integral to what we do from a deal flow as well as a culture and value add perspective. Yeah, love that. That's so cool. Two, uh, two, two last questions and then we'll get wrapped up here. Um, how big is the current team? I mean, you guys just got started. You raised your money. You bought the first few companies. Like, what, How big is the current team at Garden City? Um, so in the Garden City holding company, we have seven full-time people. 
Um, so, uh, which, and we have very specific uh, focus areas, right? So I focus on our investors and our vision and our culture. We have another partner that he focuses on business development and cultivating the relationships to keep bringing deals that we potentially want to invest in these small to mid-sized companies that are looking to sell, right? As well as any other investment that's minority deals. We have another partner that, that's from private equity that he leads our investment process. Uh, he is a gentleman on his team. We have someone that leads all of our portfolio company operations around culture, tech, and sales. He is somebody on his team as well. We have someone doing events and marketing and my chief of staff, so I guess eight. Um, so it's a small team that splits their time across our companies. But the thing that makes us sleep at night is sometimes we feel overwhelmed, but we're like, wait a minute, Warren Buffett only has like 10 people in Brickshire Hathaway. Yeah. How can they do that? Oh, I know why. It's because they only invest in companies that are already self-sufficient and have a high performance team. They don't need to step in to help run that company. That's the biggest, biggest, biggest thing that we need to always keep in mind is if we buy the right companies, we could just come alongside their team instead of being their team. Yeah, totally makes sense. And my last question is, you know, do you think you'll ever sell any of these companies? Yeah, I think we will. Yeah, I think we will sell some of these companies. I think we have a financial a, a financial stewardship to our shareholders and more importantly to the employees. So I could see there being an example where we're in an industry trying trying our best as as opportunistic owners to serve this business, but there could be a lot more opportunities if a very, very good, another family office or another strategic buys them that helps serve them or helps give them more opportunity or helps grow them in a better capacity that we can, right? There's nothing on the books right now, but but I don't want to say never, right? Or maybe there's an industry that, you know, Amazon is just eating our lunch and we see it coming from a mile away and it would just be very prudent and wise for us to not just stay and see our gross margins just get depleted year after year, right? And so, so there could be a plethora of situations, either better ownership or we just see something coming that as wise financial investors, we don't believe that we are best suited to, to navigate that storm if someone else does think that they can. But our thesis is that we intend to hold forever. Got it. So it's, it's hey, we don't ever have to sell. There's no 10-year time horizon where we got to close the fund out. We could hold this thing for 100 years. This could be the – we could have a company that ends up being the oldest company on earth. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. or, or not. We don't, we don't like this industry anymore. It's getting disrupted. We want to get out of it. And we're, 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 we're taking our fiduciary responsibility, you know, and we're, we're going to do what's best for the shareholders. Yeah. Something I dream about a lot is – um, I don't know if any of my kids will ever be in Garden City. By no means do I need them or want them to be. But I do hope that 30, 40, 50 years from now, 60 years from now even, uh, they hear the stories within these companies that I'm involved with today, that last week I was in South Florida, next week I'm in Knoxville, the week after I'm in Birmingham, I'm visiting all of our companies. I just hope that how I love these people and how I write them letters or how I just bless them and try to really, really, really focus on people could somehow be a legacy, a generational legacy that somehow decades from now that just continues. You know, So I do think really long-term with these businesses. I love it, man. So last but not least, uh, I, I know that we're going to get wrapped up here. Um, first of all, I read somewhere that you guys pay people 125000 100000 125000 for any referrals for a company that you buy. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. If anyone ever refers us a deal and we end up ever investing in that business, we give you a check for $100,000. Um, in addition, we donate $25,000 to the nonprofit of your choice. Um, so... 
uh, I, I have story after story. I think of the five businesses that we've invested in now, or the six companies actually, because there's um, a tech company that we made an investment to. But out of those, three of them came from friends. They just said, hey, my buddy's looking to sell the janitorial business. You know, he's 80 years old. He's looking to sell. Or, hey, this guy owns two businesses. He's looking to sell his pool company, you know, or someone else like, hey, there's an IT service business that he's looking to sell. Um, And so it's a way for us to say thank you. A lot of times in the private equity world, they just they they call these proprietary deals and they take people and they want and dine them in hopes to get deal flow. They save the fees of investment banking fees, but then they don't do anything. So for us, we're like, if they're helping us not get these deals that go to market through investment bankers, shouldn't we be like radically stupid, generous and be like, here's $100,000 for a finder's fee. Plus, let's also always focus that it's not only about purpose, profit, but it's also about purpose, you know, $25,000 to the nonprofit of your choice. Are you guys buying deals? By the way, that's awesome. Uh, I I dig that you do that. I love the the give back. Are you guys working with with intermediaries as far as sourcing deals too, or is this mostly all word of mouth? Yeah, so we so so we really do two separate sides of deals. One is the model we've been talking about the whole time of we buy boring, unsexy, operational companies that have been around for a long time that are throwing off millions of free cash flow that need a succession or liquidity plan. But also we've started to do deals that are just random, whatever opportunistic deals that our investors could be super helpful for because of who they are. And we're like, yeah, that might be a tech company or a real estate company or a franchise or whatever it may be. That's just a minority, you know, investing with another 50 people deals. Right. And so uh, in the traditional model of the operational companies that have been around heavy cash, uh, cash flow, I would say 50% of them come from us from intermediaries, like investment bankers and whatnot. And the other 50% comes from our network. For, Interesting. For people. Man, what an hour. I was so excited to have this conversation with you and I learned so much about what you're doing. And you're it, it, man, I just can't wait to see where this goes. I just think it's going to be enormous. And I'm really pumped for you, man. This is super cool. Thank you, Darius. Thank you very much for having me on your show. It's a great show, and I'm grateful to be on it. Oh, likewise. So, anyone that wants to learn more about uh, Garden City, can can we? What's the best way for them to hook up with you or or Garden City? Yep, uh, you could just send me an email at michael at joingardencity.com, or you go to our website, joingardencity or gardencityequity.com. Um, add me on LinkedIn. I'm always on there as well. Um, and yeah. We'd love to uh, stay in touch. Another thing that you could do to stay in touch with us is on our website. Just sign up for our service report. Every two weeks, we send out a curated email. It's a pretty awesome email. It just has a bunch of curated articles from all across the web every two weeks, uh, just around culture, redemptive, good work, good co- uh, uh, technology, innovation, um, the small business space. So it's a pretty neat article that you might like. We have about 3,000 subscribers right now. Oh, man, I can't wait to sign up for that. Guys, uh, man, what a treat having Michael here today. Um, Listen, if you love this show, share it. Go to his website. Sign up for anything and everything to learn more. And I'm going to say this because, like I said, I met Michael just by him coming up randomly on my LinkedIn feed years ago. Your LinkedIn is awesome. You have a great feed on there. And and there's a lot of garbage on LinkedIn, but you have a great feed. Lots of value there. You're, You're a value guy. You give a ton of value to the world. And I'm so excited for what you're doing next. Thank, Thank you so guys. much, man. Thank you, guys. Yeah, guys, listen, if you love this show, share it. Uh, the word's got to get out. This is the way that business needs to get done, what Michael's doing. Uh, this transaction shift that we see, I, I didn't get to say this, but I'm going to say this right now because you're, you're doing it. I tell people 
that I believe the next 10 years, mission, vision, value-driven organization are going to stomp the competition into the ground. This is the way of the world. This is where we're going. And mm-hmm. it's people like you that are making it happen. I'm so proud to have you here, my friend. And guys, thank you so much. Peace out. We love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode, you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.